want you to picture it. Late 1980s. Steven Spielberg is the golden boy, the, 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 the deity of Hollywood who can touch just about anything and knows exactly where to put his finger in order to apply just the right pressure to get across the creative stimuli he wants to get. And there's this writer who's not exactly new, but is definitely on such a rise that at this point people anticipated his next novel would be a smash success before he even finished writing it. I'm referring, of course, to Steven Spielberg and Michael Crichton. Crichton's star power at this point was so insane. This is not a joke. People were actually, studios were already bidding on the rights to make a movie on Jurassic Park before he was done filming it. They anticipated. They, they actually legitimately started filming and doing prep work and setup work for the film before the book came out. That is how certain they were of its smash success. And funnily enough, this time they were right. Jurassic Park, the book, sold exceptionally well. But of course, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the movie. Now, Crichton himself had been personally approached by Spielberg, and there's probably, although I have no evidence of this, but there's probably some backroom dealing or politicking going on for the fact that Universal was the studio that did end up successfully grabbing this deal with Spielberg heading it, because Spielberg and Crichton got along pretty well, and both of them kind of agreed with the same general vision for the film. Interestingly enough, the book, if you've ever read it, is so different from the film that I have actually argued before that they have nothing really similar other than a few names and the core concept of dinosaurs. And that's kind of it. They are drastically different from each other. I have actually used Jurassic Park, the film, which is what we'll be talking about today, as an example of how wildly a work can diverge from its source material while still remaining good. What I did not know until I started doing research for this particular rumination is that Michael Crichton himself did those rewrites, or at least the first few stages of those rewrites, because obviously a script is like a five-stage process. He is actually the one who start, sat down and was like, okay, trim this, trim this, get rid of this, pull this back down, pull this back down. And he and Spielberg, Spielberg both worked together as a team in order to craft what would eventually become the script, or at least the base uh, teleplay, um, for, or not, not teleplay, the base script, which would then later be advanced into the teleplay, for Jurassic Park, the film. I find that interesting, and it speaks to the talent of both men and their drive to do this. Spielberg himself flat out stated that one of the things he really loved about the idea of Jurassic Park was that it was trying to make things feel more believable and more grounded and more real rather than just being another monster movie. He didn't want a Godzilla. He didn't want a King Kong. He wanted something more down-to-earth and more character-centric, something Spielberg has always been very, very big on. You'll notice that he actually worked to insert a character arc for Mr. Grant throughout the course of this film that was completely absent in the original novel because he wanted that kind of character development to go throughout his work. I think it was for the best, in my opinion. I will also admit that while I do enjoy Jurassic Park, the novel, I think the film is superior to it in basically every way. That is just my opinion, of course, and I, I'm curious how many people are going to disagree with on that. I also kind of wanted to talk about Jurassic Park. Uh, really quick segue. For those of you not aware, I do deliberately set up all of my ruminations. Uh, you know, once I have the full list of the 50 or so requests for the coming year, I sit down and I try to group them by either categorical significance or thematic significance. Now, putting movies together is obvious. It's why we've been doing movies for the last couple months, or month, excuse me, I guess at this point, and we'll be doing it for the next month, this month that we're in right now. 
But I also wanted to put Dune and Jurassic Park right next to each other because both of them are films based on novelizations and both show a completely different approach to that. And I feel like more than anything else, this is why Jurassic Park was a more significant success than Dune was. Now, I'm not saying per se that it is a better film. Now, I do think it is a better film, but that's just my opinion. But I think from a more objective perspective, Jurassic Park could be seen as more more successful critically and financially. And it is because Doom tried a little bit too hard to be loyal to the book in ways that probably should have been adapted for screenplay, whereas Jurassic Park deliberately went way out of its way with the original author in order to adapt the book for movie format. So we have the same core elements but it's all been shifted around into a completely new format to fit the new format. Now, that's just my opinion on how this came to be. Um, it's also worth noting, by the way, just to give you a little bit of perspective, this was when Spielberg was basically everything he touched turned into platinum. Not gold. No, this was when he was past that. He had just finished work on Indiana Jones at the Last Crusade, Indy 3. And he was still producing with Back to the Future series. And in fact, he had begun work and was working on Schindler's List while production and post-production for this film was going on. This was basically the... For, for Steven Spielberg. And you can see his fingerprints everywhere in this film. Not only the generally lighter tone, but the absolutely amazing cinematography. Which brings me to the next thing I want to mention. I know this is going to sound very stupid, but... This is the first film I noticed directing in. Anybody who's watched any length of my show, the television stuff or the film stuff or the predominant se uh, sequences of this, knows that I've kind of noticed more and more directing things, um, choreography or blocking or camera usage or lighting usage or s specific types of edits. All of these kind of things have been more and more noticeable to me as I do more and more of this job. But all of this started with this film. When I first saw it back in 93, I want to say, um, I sat down. I, the first time I ever saw this was with my dad, and we were both watching it, and he was commenting on a simple thing. And I'll be pointing out a few instances of this throughout the film, where the film will go out of its way to present a question and then immediately cut to a visual answer to that question. And he noticed that was a unique way of, of getting the pace smoothly from one scene to another and basically making it so the transition feels completely natural while still getting across the information needed to the audience. There is some excellent visual exposition in this in this film and just exposition in general which I'll discuss more as we go through it so I started paying attention to that kind of a thing and I never really stopped <laughs> this is also the first film I ever went to the theaters and saw it in theaters more than once now I have done that since then for several films notably the Avengers which we previously covered but this was the first film that I thought was so amazing that I just, I had to go back to the theater and see it again, and then I had to go back to the theater and see it again. Now, it's worth noting that I wanted to do that for Star Trek, several of the Star Trek films, actually. I, think, I can't just say Star Trek Six, but Star Trek Four was this way as well. But I didn't get a chance to, really. Actually, I might have seen... I, I'm sorry, I have to actually take that back. I apologize. I think I did legitimately see Star Trek Four and Star Trek Six twice, once with my mom and once with my dad. So I apologize. Um... So, this was the first film I saw more than twice in the films, because I saw this like five times. Once with my dad, and then once with my mom, and then once with Andrew, and then again with Andrew, and then with Andrew and mom. Andrew was my friend at the time. Um, <clears throat> I saw this film a lot. I also want to comment on a couple other things that, that, that really bring this together. Uh, DTS, 
digital uh, something sound was actually already in the works and being founded as a company. This film is what basically succeeded in getting that company made and made it one of the standards of sound design and films going forward. Uh, Spielberg himself dumped money into the company to say, here, make this amazing for my film. Spielberg always had a good sense for that kind of a thing, and it was also being really heavily pushed by another man who is really, really good at technology in films, George Lucas. Now, that... Lord knows the man's name tends to be dragged through the mud nowadays, but there is one thing that he has been consistently good at for his entire career. The technology of filmmaking, the specific mechanics and function of how a film has worked. He has always been top-notch on that, and he has always been pushing the envelope on that. And he was really pushing the sound design of this film and, in fact, was involved in IL the ILM side of things in order to make the dinosaurs as realistic and po as possible. As I'm sure most of you know, the success of the visual effects of this film was what f was one of the major uh, things that finally convinced Lucas it was time to work on the Star Wars prequels. That and the fact that he's, he was financially recovered from other incidents that we won't go into. So we've got Steven Spielberg in his prime. We've got Michael Crichton in his prime. We've got George Lucas doing what he's really good at. And the, the incredibly talented, forgive me for not naming every name. There are hundreds of people involved in the production of this film at every level. But what we have is fantastic directing, fantastic writing, fantastic sound design. Then they got actors that were actually kind of unique for the film and somehow managed to work. I have no idea how Sam Neill works in this film. I really don't. Um, when I think of Sam Neill, I think of two things. Jurassic Park and horror films. No, seriously, look at his IMDb sometimes. The man has been in several horrific, nightmarish things, and he usually plays someone who is kind of just a little bit deranged, right? And yet he seamlessly slides into the intense, but nevertheless very affable and intelligent Dr. Grant in this film. Uh, I also want to give special props to Richard Attenborough, who actually hadn't done a lot of acting prior to, or indeed in recent years up to this, and yet somehow perfectly manages the exact tone necessary for uh, Hammond. For, for uh, I can't remember his first name. For Hammond! <laughs> Uh, for Richard Hammond. There we go, for Richard Hammond. And I'm not going to go... Laura Dern uh, was also freaking amazing as Dr. Sattler. I, I'm amazed I haven't seen her in any other thing where she has just shined like this. She's been in other works, but she just nailed the role in exactly the way she did. And, of course, there's a lot of great and very natural chemistry between Dern and McNeil. So... Or, excuse me, Neil, not McNeil, sorry. So there's some great dynamics going on there. Great characters, great acting, great script, great sound, great directing, great visual effects. I This is not a joke. As recently as last Sunday, again, this is not an exaggeration or a joke, I was talking with a friend about Jurassic Park, because I'd already started doing some of my prep work for this very video, and he unprompted, made the comment that he believed that Jurassic Park, this film, still looked more visually impressive than some more modern films that have come out, which lean a little bit too heavily on improperly designed CGI effects. I agree with that statement, by the way. Now, obviously, there are some films that are better. Duh, technology does move forward. But it says something that Jurassic Park, on the big screen with the full Blu-ray setup, has aged astonishingly well. There are scenes where you can tell it's CGI, of course there are. And there are a couple scenes which don't quite work. Usually the the raptor uh, velo uh, the Velociraptor robot parts are a little bit obvious, 
But for the most part, this film has aged magnificently, which says volumes for how much effort and time and care and work was put into this film, which brings me to my point. Many times I've discussed a work, a game, a film, and a show, and I have said, this was a luck situation. How many times have I said that? You know, Star Wars was luck, right? I mean, yeah, there were other factors, but Star Wars should not have succeeded as much as it did. The original Star Trek should not have succeeded as much as it did, right? Final Fantasy should not have succeeded as much as it did. Yet they did. Jurassic Park is like at the, the inverse side of that bell curve. Because Jurassic Park succeeded because everyone involved was very talented and really wanted to put out the best possible product they could. And lo and behold, Jurassic Park was a huge success and to this day holds the 27th slot as the highest grossing film of all time. It is worth noting that's not adjusted for inflation because those figures are irritating to get a hold of and that's all I'm going to say about that. But the fact that in a, in a net value, or in, a, in gross value not adjusted for inflation, the fact that it still holds the 27th slot is damned impressive. Oh yeah, and just a few little things here. This this movie got three Oscars, four Saturns, one Bambi, one BAFTA, one Hugo, and about eight others that I didn't actually write down because you probably wouldn't recognize them. So I'm going to be gushing a little bit. This film evokes emotion in me in a good way, and that's actually kind of rare for me. This film also was an absolute treat to go back through. At no point in time did I find myself bored, and for very, very few periods of time did I find myself think having nothing to say, which is why this is probably going to be a long video. The fact that I haven't even got to the film yet probably says something about that. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is the cinematography. The first shot we have... Everyone walks into this knowing it's going to be a dinosaur film, right? It's called Jurassic Park. So the initial thought is a bunch of people looking very tense and very uptight. Oh, God. And they've all got their guns. And you see, so you hear, actually, something moving through the foliage. You can't tell what it is. You can only hear these weird, almost bestial sounds coming from it. Now, this is a basically a visual red herring, because after a few shots of this, after a few seconds of this silence, you hear a distinctly mechanical groan which then indicates to you, the audience, oh, it's just the, the thing coming in. Now, this is brilliant in its own right. First of all, it plays on the audience's expectations and starts off with, I know this sounds weird, it starts off running. First scene. It's coming. Tension. Suspense. Oh, it's just a crane. And then you relax just enough before the raptor hits the, hits the, the, the intreating, what do you call it, door, ramp, whatever you want to call that. And then a man gets killed, or mauled, or whatever actually happens to him. It's a brilliant way to set up the audience's expectations, play to that expectation, invert it, and then pay it off, all within one scene. This is what I'm talking about with the kind of cinematic brilliance that this film has. Almost every scene, you can just feel the polish, and I love it. Which brings me to another point I want to talk about. So, um, the first the thing I want to talk about here is that... There's actually a surprising large number of snafus in terms of, you know, you can see set set stuff or props in the background and some continuity gaps with regard to sets and designs. There's a huge number, actually, throughout the course of this film. I will admit, even as a kid, I noticed several of these. 
it is a testament, in my opinion, to the power of this film and how awesome it is that I am willing to ignore such a near nonstop cavalcade of mess-ups because the core element is so good. So I've decided after some thought not to nitpick too many of them. There's a couple that I feel are especially, especially egregious later on. But for the most part, I'm willing to forgive this because the film is giving me something good, which is something I've talked about many times. Now, another thing that the film does very, very well is it doesn't show the raptor, and it doesn't show the violence. With basically two exceptions in the entire film, it doesn't really show the violence in this whole thing. Despite the fact that people do die in this film in horrible ways, it's mostly heard. And thanks to the excellent sound design, it's just as horrifying as if you actually saw it. Now, I've actually talked to a few of my own viewers about this very concept recently because there's different mindsets of design philosophy when it comes to film, movie, and video games. Anything that is a visual and audio medium in presenting violence. For me, purely, purely my opinion and my preference, I prefer it when it's either implied or used surgically. As in, something happens... And then we either don't see it or we see the after effects of it or something like that. And then if you're going to actually show the violence, you have to show it at a very crucial moment so it will mean more when you do so. Now, that's just my opinion on that one. That's not necessarily saying that's correct or incorrect. I just thought I'd share that because that's probably one of the reasons I love this film so much. <laughs> one of the many reasons. So... One of the things the film does very well, and I, I know I've already commented on this, but it just exposition, 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 and it dumps a lot of info on the audience quickly, rapidly, and strangely smoothly. There are precious few examples of, as you know, within this film. Instead, what we see are people informing other people of things they don't know about or that they just learned about. So it's new information to them, and thus it's new information to us. They also usually do this while something else is happening. The digger scene with the, with the, with the lawyer. I love how the first person, by the way, we really meet in this is Muldoon. The first major character is Muldoon, and the second is, uh, uh, it starts with a G. I wrote it down. Shoot, what's his name? The lawyer, the blood-sucking lawyer. Uh, oh God, where is he? Uh, uh, Gerano? God, they say his name like once in the film. Uh, anyways, the blood-sucking lawyer. I'm just going to call him that. <laughs> uh, it's the first two major characters we meet. I find something about that very funny. Also, by the way, this film went through a lot of rewrites. So, as we are getting the audible exposition of there's a lawsuit, we need to bring in... You know, we need to bring in these specialists. We're going to go after Mr. Grant. In other words, getting across the basic information needed to allow us, the audience, to know why Grant and why Sattler are being brought into this, while at the same time visually showcasing the, the extensive operation of the mining and the digging and literally showing the mosquito in amber. Very nice touches. And, of course, a lot of this is kind of Chekhov's gun as well, because an audience seeing this for the first time sees some kind of bug, might not even recognize it as a mosquito, in some kind of weird thing that, i got to be honest, as a kid, I didn't know what Amber was when I first saw this. When I first saw this. Um, this actually uh, was before I started really getting into geology. What? I was one of those kids. What do you want from me? I was a geek. I liked rocks. I liked gems. Um, I had a rock collection had some stuff from the crater down in Arizona. So I'm just looking at like this this weird 
amber-colored substance with a bug in it. I'm like, what is that? And it's just stuck in the back of my mind, so now I know what to think of later when it's fully explained. Then we cut over to Grant. And I, I, once again, I love this sort of exposition cutting. We, we cut straight to Grant. They're going ahead, digging out the actual uh, raptor bones. Um, why is a kid there? I've always wondered that. Why was a kid at that dig site? I mean, I'm assuming it's one of the kids of the people who works there. But that's never explained or expanded upon. Now, we know the real reason why the kid is there. It's so that Grant can have his beginning establishing moment. Yeah, he's smart. He and Sattler both demonstrate competency and intelligence many times in this film. So I'm not going to cover all that. But instead it shows how he's not really into kids. And then he has some nice chemistry with Sattler. Again, Dern and uh, Neil have some excellent chemistry together. And then the helicopter comes in. Now I'm kind of skipping forward a little bit because one of the things I love about the helicopter scene is that it demonstrates in a very casual, you probably don't even notice it kind of a way, the mindset of Richard Hammond. Hammond was drastically changed from the books. In the books he was a bastard. Uh, if you've never read Jurassic Park, it, it was a bit of a shock um, to, to go straight from the movie and then to go reread the book and be like, oh my god, that's right, he was a terrible person. Like, I hadn't really, <laughs> I was like, what the hell? Um, and I knew a friend of mine who had never read the book was like, this isn't Hammond. This is a this is a terrible, greedy businessman. Yeah, no, Hammond in the films, he is much more fatherly, more paternal, but he does have that critical flaw of hubris. He really has no problem using the technology, the power, the money that he has at his disposal, and he uses it casually and effortlessly. And he just sort of, and he's very affable about the way he does it, which makes him a very likable character, which I think was a good move for the film, my opinion. Because keeping, his, keeping the hubris and keeping the uh, arrogance and the, you know, the I can do whatever, while making him an unlikable character would have treaded too far into the, da the dangerous territory of making this a character that some audience members are just going to want off the screen. There are still plenty of reasons to dislike Richard Hammond, but the character and his performance are not among those. And I think that was an important thing. And as I said before, Mr. Attenborough uh, did a wonderful, wonderful job uh, of doing it. Hang on, is it Richard Hammond? God damn it, I'm sorry. Give me a minute. What's his freaking name? <laughs> I can't believe this. Oh, I don't know anybody's name. I know the last names. What do you want from me? I just watched this film. Uh, there we go. So the next thing I want to... It's John Hammond. It's John Hammond. I'm calling him Richard because it's Richard Attenborough playing John Hammond. Please don't leave me 50 comments saying I was wrong about that. John Hammond. So we see Hammond there. And... Uh, one of the things I love about him is, again, his exuberance. This is clearly a Elon Musk kind of a situation for him, or a Tony Stark, if you will. This is not something he's doing because he's rich and bored. He's not interested in the power. You know, he's not interested in the money. He is interested in actually accomplishing something. He's interested in using his, his wealth and influence to expand into a creative outlet, right? Um, he... Uh, don't remember when that's coming out in relation to this. I'm sorry, look at, let me check my schedule really quick. Okay, it looks like next week. I've actually already recorded this film, my video on Blade Runner 2049, but it's actually coming out next week for you guys. He reminds me of the exact opposite of Wallace 
from Blade Runner 2049 in, in so many different ways. He is more interested in the act of the art and the sharing this wonderful, amazing thing with everyone. He even says this in his motivational speech later on where he talks about the fleas. You know, I wanted to make a real flea circus where they could actually feel it, where they could actually touch it. I wanted to make something amazing and then I wanted to share that with the world. Even when the lawyer's like, yeah, no, we could charge whatever we want for this. And Hammond's like, no, 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 no. This isn't intended for the super rich. This is intended for everybody. His motives are legitimately pure. Now, I'm not saying he's not a poor, a, 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 un, I'm not saying he's perfect, but he certainly is a more likable person because of where he's coming from. Which brings me to Nedry, who is the exact opposite of this. So, we don't really get a lot of uh, exposition on several of the characters and their general motivations, but we get a lot of several of the core, and Nedry is basically the exact opposite of Hammond. Nedry is in it for the money and cares about the money and himself. He is more than willing to basically screw over the park, possibly permanently, in order to rob it in what is literally grand scale and, and in the six to seven digit range, um, industrial sabotage. He's totally cool with that. Because why wouldn't he be? And I want to stress that. It's not just the, oh, I'm willing to take this risk because I really need the money. It's He's completely normal about it. He is literally casual about it. You know, when Dodson, hey, oh, Dodson, Dodson, we got Dodson here. Nobody cares. He is just eh, blasé about what he's about to do. The only time he shows any uh, urgency or, or, or caring of impact about what he's about to do is his concern about being caught and how much of a hurry he's in. And that's it. So he's a horrible human being is what I'm trying to say. However, there's one little line there I want to comment on because I've heard some people say that Nedry's motivations weren't in the film. And I think those people weren't paying attention to be as blunt as possible. Now, Nedry is more fleshed out in the book, of course. But my, my reason being there's two lines, <laughs> there's two dialogues that really help to establish him. There's this one bit where he says, don't be cheap on me, Dodson. Now, at first, that's a, you think that's a character-establishing moment because he's forcing the guy who is giving him brilliance of money to pay for a bill, which is probably like 50 bucks. But then you add on to that the fact that he has this one little line, and i got to be honest, I never caught this line before. That was Hammond's mistake. Yeah. Anywho. So, then we move on to Jeff Goldblum. Again, kind of establishing our characters bit by bit, playing the ever-eccentric Malcolm. And Jeff Goldblum seamlessly slides into the role of a brilliant yet very eccentric, uh, semi-chaotic person, which is uh, probably saying something about Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> but he does, he does slide seamlessly into the role. And it's it, worth noting that Malcolm was originally written to be much more of a slimy, unpleasant person and was, again, lighter toned for the sake of the film. And Goldblum himself said, hang on, hang on, and actually interjected on behalf of his character a few times to insist that scenes would go in different directions. Now, I think that was for the betterment for the same general reason as Hammond. Because between Goldblum's performance and the presentation of Malcolm, he is more likable overall, and therefore we're more willing to tolerate his presence on screen because he does get a little smarmy and he does get a little slimy. So I thought about making a list of all the things that go wrong with the park before things go wrong with the park. I decided against it. But the first and earliest example of this is the seatbelts. Now, everyone's pointed out, yeah, yeah, it's a female-female seatbelt. Ha-ha. Everyone knows that. 
But the point is, based on the way it's presented, based on what we see, and they make this very clear, the, the seatbelts are just wrong, as in they're improperly designed. She has, it's not like he got the wrong seatbelt thing. Sattler, who's right next to him, has her seatbelt correctly set up there. So he just, it's just improperly designed, which is, in my opinion, the point. This is the very first time we see Jurassic Park failed at a design and implementation level. There's a line later that uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character says, it's like item 151 of the bug list today about the headlights not working properly. We get hints all over the place that this park is a buggy, unfinished mess. And I think that's one of the predominant points of the film. But I think I'll talk about that more later. I just wanted to bring it up now with the seatbelt thing. So note the approach to the music. Over the, basically from the moment the helicopter is swooping into uh, the island and trying... And, and, you know, we go, dun, 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 John Williams is awesome. Did I mention they had John Williams doing the music for this film. So in addition to wonderful sound design and directing and acting and writing and visual effects, they also have John freaking Williams doing the music. If this film wasn't gold, something would be wrong with the universe. So this wonderful triumphant music is just blaring. Yes! God, I went out and bought this soundtrack like the next day. Um... And the helicopter comes in, and then it lands, they get on the jeeps, and they start taking off. And the music takes an interesting tone. It gets in this almost light-hearted, adventurous kind of tone, as if they're going on this wonderful, happy... Uh, an adventure, right? Not, you know, a task, not a struggle, but just this light-hearted, yeah, I can't wait to see what's over the next ridge. And as they're going through, there's a little quick bits of exposition. Um, and... They do a lot of things, and they'll be doing a lot of things over the next, like, 15 to 20 minutes, where they establish how the entire park works, from the gates, to the cars, to the jeeps, to the electric fences, to the automated systems. They showcase everything because they want you, the audience, to know how everything works, so you can then appreciate when it doesn't. It's the same general mindset that goes into most heist films. For those of you who don't know what I mean, in most heist films, they, ex they showcase what the plan is supposed to be and what everyone's role is supposed to be so that then when things go wrong, you, the audience, can appreciate their ad adaptation to what should have been. Make sense? Um... And then, and then Sattler, she's sitting there, and she's talking as they go through this leaf. And for a bit, I didn't catch this when I was younger. It wasn't until, like, my second or third viewing, I was like, oh, she's blown away by this. And I love this because it gets across so many things. I don't even know how to properly describe it. She is blown away by them reproducing a plant from an ancient era, which is a mind-blowing and amazing achievement, legitimately. And then her attention is turned to a, to a brontosaurus or a brachiosaurus. I forget which. Forgive me. I know. It, I know. I know. <laughs> I think they say brachiosaurus, but whatever. Point being, it showcases Hammond's mentality, and it showcases their appreciation and understanding for what they're seeing. And there's another point, which I'll save for later because I want to talk about that separately. But I mentioned that because Hammond is not the type to dream small. It's part of his arrogance. It's part of his hubris. I admit I kind of share this same problem, being too ambitious, wanting to do too much, wanting to go further than you probably really should. So that second point, the music shifts into this very quiet tone, and, and McNeil, Neil, Sam Neil does a great job of, as he's trying to get his 
glasses off as he's just looking in utter shock at a dinosaur. This is not the first film to come out to include dinosaurs in it, and it's not the first fictional work to come out to include dinosaurs in it. So credit to everyone involved for getting across that moment. They actually do something else with this later. I'll talk about when we get there. But the moment of, oh my God, it's a dinosaur. It's right there in front of us. And the music shifts into this almost just awe-inspired wonderment, beautifully encapsulating the scene as the two actors go forward. And they do another thing which is really great. Most people probably just kind of brush by it, but both uh, Grant and Sattler talk about, like, this theory is wrong and this theory is wrong. And as we could, we could literally seeing this dinosaur and just comparing thoughts and theories and designs of, of people that have been trying to figure out how these creatures worked for years. And that's actually a, a thing throughout the film as well. And I also love Hammond's utter joy just uh, just absolute joy at being able to share this with them because that's what he wants now i also want to share everyone's reaction to finally seeing the dinosaurs is wonderfully telling i already mentioned sattler and grants malcolm's is just to grin and just be like wow that's mind-blowing right <laughs> and then of course you already know hammond's and then there's the Gennaro, I'm pretty sure it's Gennaro, the lawyers, whose response is, we're going to make so much money off of this. Anyways. <laughs> oh, yeah, and one final little bit. They do move in herds. I know that sounds like a minor thing, but that line has always resonated with me in ways I don't quite know how to explain, because... I want you to imagine you spent most of your adult life studying something. Now, you don't have the actual work in front of you. Like you, you, you can't go study whatever it is you're studying, in this case, dinosaurs. All you can do is infer from bone design, from position, from location, from whatever tidbits of distant fourth-party information you can, you can engender. And then to finally have your theory proven right, there's just something really satisfying about that. So... Movie moves on. Oh, yeah, really quick thing here. I counted how many times he said spares no expense throughout the course of the film. I feel like I missed one, so it's four or five times. I'm just going to mention that because it'll be important a little bit later. So then we cut to the little park ride thing where it's like, here's the cartoon, and the cartoon helps to exposit a little bit on how exactly they made these dinosaurs. It is worth knowing that the movie kind of skips over several of the steps involved in the creation of these things that the book went into, and that's fine. And in fact, later works within the same setting, like Jurassic World, would then go on to add on to the fact that, yeah, no, we were actually engineering a lot more than we were deriving. But what do you want? You wanted dinosaurs, right? Uh, nice little stuff. Uh, we also see Henry Wu for like two minutes, which is funny because he would go on to become a recurring character. And indeed, uh, from my understanding, we'll be back in the film that's coming out uh, next month, I believe, from when this video goes live. I wanted to time it so that it would come out closer, but there was no way to really rejigger that around, so I said just screw it. And then they break out of the restraints of the ride. 
Uh, this is, I believe, the third overall thing that's gone wrong so far, thanks to bad design. And I only point it out because that's a pretty big design flaw. You're actually going through the actual legitimate, that's where they're doing the real work thing. You don't want anybody to be able to get out of those restraints for basically any reason. Kids who want to go somewhere they shouldn't, uh, exuberant adults who want to go somewhere they shouldn't, uh, too many cameras or flashes or anything that might cause trouble for the people working in there, um, people actually intent on sabotage, people intent on uh, de demolition or any other more violent act. I mean, there are so many reasons why that shouldn't be allowed to happen. Now, um, there's a couple notes I want to mention. We hear twice that they're already evacuating the island. It's a very subtle point, but I love it. It's just quietly and in the background. Remember, you've got 15 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever to get to your boats. Get down to the docks and get, and get off the island now because they're evacuating the island. Keep that in the back of your mind. So the birthing scene is wonderful for the little Velociraptor because it manages to hit a wide range of emotions without really altering its stride. It's quiet and wonderful. And again, that's sort of awe-inspiring. There's a little choral piece that, that John Williams puts in to, to highlight the moment. And then it just kind of goes quiet as they question the nature of this and they question the philosophy of this and, and what they could do exactly about this. And Malcolm starts to give his rather vague complaints. I'll talk more about that later. And then we get to something more dangerous and quiet as we start to realize how effortlessly and casually these people are reproducing dangerous animals. It's a nice scene. Um, so then there's a scene with the raptor paddock. The raptor paddock scene is pretty much perfect. There's a lot of things they do right. I'm not going to go over every single detail. Or If I went over, over every detail of every scene that went, did, was done correctly, we'd be here a very long time. Uh, instead, I'm just going to mention two things. First of all, we see our proper introduction to our good Mr. Uh, Reynolds, I believe. Reynolds, right? Shoot, what's his name? Gosh, I, there's, I am so bad with names today. I'm sorry. No, not Malcolm. No, not Gennaro. It's... Uh, Muldoon, thank you, God, Muldoon, not Reynolds, <sighs> Muldoon, one of these days I'm just going to do a character sheet, of cheat sheet for characters in these things I work on, and Muldoon emphasizes the danger and, and terrifying nature of the raptors, and kind of establishes his badass cred early on too, but there's a couple things they do very brilliantly, first of all, we don't see even a glimpse of a raptor in this scene, we do hear a lot of a raptor, we see a lot of bushes moving, and we see people's reactions to what they can actually see. There's also the subtle implication based on the design of the paddock that it is that people are supposed to come by here and look in and be like, oh, there's the pretty raptors, and they're actually going to showcase what just happened actually to tourists, which is kind of messed up. And again, brings up the question, why are they breeding raptors? Then, and this is pr probably my favorite part of it, after they've finished discussing how dangerous and terrifying these things are and how they are learning and adapting, they then hear this crane in the background, and they look over, and the crane is lifting of the thing that used to be carrying the cow. There's no cow left, and half the crane is in shambles. Brilliant presentation. Then they go straight for lunch. Yay. So... I'm going to talk about Malcolm here really quick because I feel like Malcolm's complaints are frankly too vague. Um, he sounds... I've done this myself 
we've probably all done this at some point in our life, when there's something we don't like and we either can't or don't really know how to emphasize why we don't like it. So we just say in vague words that it's bad. It's bad because it's bad, it's horrible, and it's just tawful, and it shouldn't be happening. And that's the extent of his complaints, essentially. And this is how he is presented throughout several aspects of the, of the early parts of the film. This is in direct contrast to the book where his predominant complaints were about how the, how the park was a badly constructed mess, as I've already been highlighting as we've been going through here. Um, it's funny then because Sattler immediately brings up a much more concrete point. The best way to emphasize it is she mentions you guys have poison plants here that you put here because you think they're pretty. Like... You, you have no idea what you're doing with this. You're just, you're just flailing around like, well, that looks good, and not putting proper effort and thought into the execution. And I tend to agree with her on that because notice that Hammond's park isn't ready yet. Now, that's important to note because they already have dinosaurs, active, roaming, and at adult size. And yet he doesn't yet have the park that's to contain them or present them properly designed and built yet. Like, you see the, the mentality there. And then Grant brings up the, the other obvious point. These are creatures that act in ways we don't know being put into an environment that is effectively alien to them. We have no idea how they're going to react to this environment. And therefore we don't know what to expect. And the only one in his eye is the blood-sucking lawyer. Um... So, so that's all good stuff. Um, there's some exposition that's kind of left out of on the wayside of the film. That he brought the grandkids in because they were going through a divorce, and obviously their parents were going through a divorce. But anybody who's ever had ki- has, has been a kid while your parents are getting divorced knows that the kid goes through the divorce too. It's not fun. It's not pretty. Um, so the kids are going through the divorce, and so he brought them to the island to to keep you know to, to distract their minds from it and to help them feel better. And I point that out because that really is Hammond's mindset in a nutshell. I mean, it's not like there's anything dangerous or wrong with his island. We have everything completely under control. We've spared no expense. So they get on the cars. Tim looks up to Grant. Grant has no idea how to deal with it. They're still evacuating, by the way. This is, I believe, the third time they've mentioned the evacuation thing, except now we finally meet uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character, who I don't remember the name of, forgive me. And they point out the storm that's on its way, tropical storm. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment to ask you guys a question finally. I like to ask you guys questions during these ruminations. Do you think now is the first time Hammond is being informed of this storm, or do you think he knew the whole time and just didn't care? Now, based on his presentation, I like to think the former. I like to think that he was the kind of person who was just, ah, oh, yes, and this will be fine, and we'll go here, and we'll all show up right about now, and oh, there's a storm. And then, even with the news that there's a storm coming, he's just like, ah, it'll be fine. Continue with the tour. <laughs> what? Keeping in mind, they have been evacuating the island because of the storm. And, of course, that's a wonderful movie building uh, technique as well because now the number of excess people is going to be reduced so the focus of the film is going to be much more tightly in on a few individual characters rather than say um, I don't want to name a specific example but you know rather than a typical horror approach to here's hundreds of faceless people not faceless nameless people dying instead anybody who dies is someone you know and who has been established for a significant amount of film time you know more uh, more impact because of the greater t- character focus on that. So, 
Note the two-purposed element of the failed tour. This is brilliant, by the way. Because first and foremost, it maintains the suspense for the audience. We have seen a small handful of dinosaurs so far, and none in a dangerous or threatening manner, right? So we have seen nothing but, you know, oh gosh, right? So we are kept in suspense, but the other narrative point being made is that they, not only is this park broken, but they have no control over what's going on. It's like, oh no, it'll be fine, everything will be fine. Oh, hang on, this, this thing, oh, this is supposed to come off, right? Clunk. You know, that's what's going on here. Now, uh, Malcolm gives an extremely basic explanation of chaos theory to uh, Sattler. And it's worth noting that, that definition, the definition he gives could actually be debated. But he does make some very good points, regardless of the specifics of which particular theory he is presenting. And that is the idea that there are so many variables that are difficult to even quantify, let alone actually be cognizant of and control, that you don't have, like, there's no such thing as a 2 plus 2 equals 4 situation in a real-life environment. You know, 2 plus 2 will always equal 4, as long as it is 2 and 2, not 2.8 or 2.7. I, I know there's other ways around the 2.2 question, but you get my point, right? That's a known variable with everything understood, 2, 2, 4, done. But in real life, there are literally trillions of different variables, most of which people aren't even aware of. Most of which you probably can't be aware of, depending on the level of technology you got. And that's his general point. And then... <laughs> and then Grant opens the door and wanders out of the, of the moving vehicle. Um, why are the doors on this thing not lockable? Now, what's funny is they cut to Jackson's character, Samuel Jackson. He's just like, I told you how many times we need locks on the doors. And it's just, why wasn't that the first thing that was done? Keep in mind, these things are going into relatively dangerous areas and extremely dangerous areas. I want you to picture some kid on an actual tour who's like, oh my god, it's a T-Rex, look, mama, and opens the door and wanders out and gets electrocuted to death because he goes, actually, no, his feet would be on the ground. So yeah, he would, he would be electrocuted to death as soon as he touches that fence. I mean, I can't be the only one who sees the problem with that, right? That's like, that's like best case scenario. It could go much worse from there. I can't believe they don't have locks on the doors. So, now we have the second layer of wonder. Now, this was a great scene. It, I, I feel it was crucial to keep it in the film, even though the subplot is a, is a byproduct of the book and is never really resolved within the course of the film. The subplot of why the Triceratops is getting sick, you know, the, 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 the poisonous lilac beads dripping off and leaving poison on the leaves, which the Triceratops eat and then get poison, yada, yada, yada. Point being... It's important to keep in because it is, and forgive me for repeating myself, the second layer of wonderment. It is one thing, an amazing, wonderful thing, but it's one thing to see a, you know, a brontosaurus or a brachiosaurus and to see the, the herds moving through. It's another to sit down and physically touch a triceratops. The scene where Grant lays on its stomach and then just moves up with his breathing. Or the scene where she's patting its nose and its, its horns and is literally crying. We as human beings ascribe a certain reality to things we can tangibly interact with. Now, how much that is varies from person to person. Um, I'm actually going to share something a little bit personal about myself, so I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, I have very little tactile memory. 
to give you an idea what I mean by that, my niece, who I haven't seen in a couple of days because I've been working, gives me hugs pretty much every time I see her. As of now, a few days later, I can't remember what those feel like. Like, I remember how I felt internally, emotionally, but the physical sensation is gone. I have no memory of that. Um, and so one of the things I tend to do, just without even really meaning to, is occasionally I'll run my fingers along, like, my bed or the wall or whatever as I'm walking by, basically to remind myself of how that feels and to, to remind myself that I'm really here. It makes it more real for me because those sensations are so distant and so absent in my memory. Make sense? Um, so the idea of being able to go up and physically touch a triceratops and physically interact with one, I, I totally get that level of, oh my gosh. Um, so <clears throat> then, uh, then we have some, some more competence for Dr. Sattler. Let me just say that I like how, how awesome she is in this film. I know that sounds like a weird thing. To, to comment on, but she is uh, she is competent both physically and mentally throughout the course of this film, uh, performing several feats of athletic strength or dexterity, as well as being able to think her way around the problem significantly in many different scenes. And so this is another scene that helps to establish her, for lack of a better term, cred. And I do like that. Um, and then we see another little bit, and this is when things start to slowly exit. It's the 56-minute mark, by the way. We are 56 minutes into this film, and the film has established the characters and established the wonder and established the theme and established that the park is breaking down. And now, 56 minutes into this wonderful film, that's when things start to escalate and go wrong and will basically never stop going wrong until the end of the film, until literally five minutes before the end of the film. It will just be a continuous cavalcade of worse with the occasional breather in between. And it all starts with Dennis Nedry. And he hits execute, and the next thing we hear is the thunder crash. Now, I know, that's a little bit of an obvious thing to do, but it works very well in my opinion. Um, and Nedry is so damned obvious, it's actually funny. Now, I want to mention something really quick as an aside. One of the things that uh, Crichton's original point was, was... This is all terrible. This is all horrible. This should never be done. Like, Crichton, the individual, the real person, the writer, legitimately believed that control over nature was just an, an, an not only an incorrect thing, but an impossible thing, that it couldn't be managed. Now, I personally don't actually agree with that mindset, but you can see his fingerprints in that throughout the course of the, the film, and especially in the book. Spielberg relates himself more to Hammond the person who wants to bring these things and has the power and capacity to do so and has this vision of, I want to share this with the world. Uh, make of that what you will. Uh, uh, Crichton himself associates himself with Malcolm, by the way. So, author insert kind of a character. Uh, or at least author viewpoint character would actually be a better way. Or no, uh, that's not the right phrase. It's the author speaking character or something like that. There's a term for that. Anyways, I bring that up. Because even though the predominant point was we can't control nature, one of the things I find really strange is that human greed and human screw-ups tend to be the obstacle as much as, if not more than, nature, if we were to define both the dinosaurs and the weather and the trees and all that as nature, as natural obstacles to overcome. Now, to me, that's part of why I like this film. It would be too easy to make the dinosaurs be the bad guys, the destructo, and we are doom, and, and, you know, Godzilla it up, right? The unstoppable force that you can't do anything about. They don't. Instead, the dinosaurs are a component of a greater threat, which is being comprised of several disparate parts. And I feel that that really adds to the film's um, complexity, is the word I want to use. 
So a whole bunch of stuff happens in the next few things. I'm just going to kind of race, race through my notes here. Um, so, uh, you know, they, Nedry's running off. The music starts to Im- Im- improve. He steals the embryos. The video feed stops on the, on the road, and then the car stops. I'm like, what, what happened? I don't know. Uh, Nedry quite literally bursts open the gates to Jurassic Park. Nice little visual pun there. Um the raptor fences. Why are the raptor fences on? But not the others. And then again, another answer, another one of those transitions I mentioned before. And then, where did the vehicle stop? And the next thing we see is the goat. It's just bam, bam, bam. Each of these scenes basically feels like you're jogging throughout each of the scene. And then it cuts to the goat. And it's the first thing we see and it's the first thing we hear. And we already know what that goat means. One of the things the film does very well, um, and this is arguably Spielberg's hallmark uh, style as a director is he likes to associate A with B, B being the horrible thing, and then use A to present B. He does this a lot. Uh, the most obvious being the, the the debris being carried around by the water. We know that's not just a bunch of debris. The context in the movie lets us know that's the freaking shark. That's the great white, right? Um, this is everywhere in his work. If, if you pay attention to any of his films, he does this a lot. But the goat in this case is that presentation. There's the goat. We know what that goat means. We had the whole arguably boring scene earlier with the T-Rex. But I think that boring scene was actually critical to emphasize this scene. Because now everything is basically the exact inverse of what it was. Not opposite. The goat's still there. They're still there in the vehicles, going the other way. It's now pouring rain. It's dark. There's a tropical storm coming. The lights are out. The electricity's out. And there's no music playing. For one minute at the, excuse me, I'm saying this wrong, at the one hour, one minute mark to the one hour, four minutes and 40 second mark is nothing but a very, very slow, quiet buildup to true horror and the build-up to the reveal of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, which happens at the one hour, four minute, and 40 second mark. Hour and four into this film is the first time we see the Tyrannosaurus Rex. And the build-up is fantastic. I'm sorry, I, I hate to keep emphasizing that, but it's fantastic. The music stops. There is no music for almost anything in the T-Rex scene. There's a couple little tidbits, and then the music picks up when they start going over the cliff... But for the entirety of T-Rex scene, no music. This is how you do no music properly, by the way. This is how you emphasize that kind of a scene. And then there's the rain, and then there's the boom, and then there's the water ripple. And notice how, since we've already established the goat means the T-Rex, we now establish that the boom and the little water ripple also mean the T-Rex, which will be coming up later, not too long from now. Then the hand on the offense, where's the goat? Conk! Goat lands on the top. And wow. I'm sorry to say this, but they did an absolutely phenomenal job on making this Tyrannosaurus Rex not only awesome, but legitimately horrifying. I gotta be blunt, I was never much into T-Rexes, because, you know, I mean, what's the difference between a T-Rex and an Allosaur? I mean, God sakes, they're both just kind of bipedal, whatever. Um, Until this film, and this film made T-Rexes awesome. And I'm just gonna say it that way. (laughs) Holy crap. And then... I'm trying to think what I want to talk about next. I've got like five things to talk about. This scene is just poetry in motion. Um, let's talk about Gennaro. Gennaro, uh, the, the lawyer. 
What's the first thing he does? He looks up. He's already been on edge this whole time, if you've been paying attention. The actor doesn't get a lot of credit for this film, but he does a very good job of portraying the three different sides of himself. The, I'm completely in my element, slightly stuck up, I'm in charge. Like, the way he so casually threatens Hammond early on is a good example of that. Then there's the, oh man, we're going to make so much money, completely replaced enthusiasm. Ah, you can just see the dollar signs going off in his head, which is the second thing. And the third is this slowly increasing sense of dread and then legitimate panic. Not fear, not terror, a couple steps past that. This is one thing I want to comment on. I've heard more than a few people spit venom at Gennaro for just blitzing and running out of the car. But to be 100% blunt, that is a very human reaction. We, for good or for bad, we never really know what we're going to be like in the moment unless we've been in a moment ourselves and thus know our true character, to put that as bluntly as I can. Um, I know all of us would like to think that we'd be able to do what Grant does and be able to, to save the kids and distract the T-Rex, but we don't know, not unless we've been through those kind of things in real life to understand how we would really react to that kind of situation. His reaction is thus extremely human. There is a type of panic that's hard to describe because it is legitimately illogical when your brain effectively shuts down and is no longer thinking properly. And that's what's, go what's going through him at that moment. At that moment, there's nothing left but just get out, get out, hide, and that's what he does. What's funny is the kids present the same general panic, and most notably her, Lex, who I haven't really talked much about yet uh, because the kids haven't really had a lot to do until now. Uh, Lex goes and just gets a flashlight because she's not thinking. She is the smart one of the two, but she's not thinking right now. I mean, would you be... <laughs> at that age, at that point, in that situation. Notice that they show the T-Rex sliding his hand on the, 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 the fence, so the characters and the audience both are well aware. Those, those fences are off. Yeah. And so, uh, quick aside, by the way, Ariana Richards is the woman who plays Lex, and she was one of several girls who were all lined up to it. And Spielberg, who is an amazing character director, um, and who knows how to rip a performance out of just about anybody, uh, he had them all scream for him. Now, his intention was to see which one of them could make that scream feel legitimate and real and thus impact the audience the best. Reportedly, from several sources, when Ariana went up to do her scream... She screamed so perfectly that uh, Spielberg's wife woke up and rushed in to make sure the kids were okay because it sounded that legitimate. And, I mean, if you've ever been a parent or someone who's taking care of a kid, you know that that kind of response is just kind of automatic, especially if you were sleeping at the time. I myself have woken up in the middle of the night because, oh, God, what's wrong? You know, I mean, <laughs> so... She does a really good job of screaming, and I know that usually would sound like an insult, but I mean that as with total sincerity. She sounds terrified out of her mind, which is exactly what she should sound. Probably my absolute favorite part of that, uh, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, is when uh, Grant manages to get him and her, Tim and Lex, uh, well, no, excuse me, he gets Lex out of the car, not Tim. Tim's still trapped in the car. And then she, she just has a couple moments where she catches her breath, and then she just screams. Now, that's stupid, and that's insane, and that's illogical, and very, very human. Rewinding just a little bit. 
Grant actually, Grant and Malcolm both watch a little bit of what's going on with the kids in literally dumbstruck horror. It takes until he starts to to actually attack the, the vehicle for Grant to be like, oh God, I gotta do something. I gotta do something. Uh, uh, flares. Okay, flares. By the way, there's flares in this truck that anyone can just get to along with night vision goggles. Was anybody thinking this tour out? I'm just wondering. Anyway, so he grabs the flares. He's like, hey, fling, and he flings it to the side, which is brilliant thinking and showcases how he knows what he's talking about and is able to stand up and be, for lack of a better term, the hero of the moment. Now, originally, Malcolm was supposed to run pretty much the same way the lawyer did. Just, ah. Jeff Goldblum himself was like, dude, no. No, 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 no. Let's do something better. He still needs to be injured. That's fine. Let's make him be injured trying to do the right thing and failing miserably. Okay. So he tries to do the right thing and he fails miserably. Grabs, you know, grabs the, the thing. Hey, look at me. Ian, freeze. And he's just, yeah. And he runs. And he's like, oh, God. And it, you could just feel it in his performance. I didn't think this out. I didn't think this out. So he tosses the flare aside. But then he keeps running. And remember, motion, at least is presented in the film. The T-Rex is attracted to motion. So yeah, okay, the flare, but this guy's still running right in front of me. So of course, it still chases after him and he gets heavily injured. Um, and then the first person to die is Gennaro. The first character, the first of the main characters we were introduced, excuse me, the second major character we were introduced to is the first one to die. And a lot of people in the theaters when I saw this as a kid basically cheered when the lawyer got eaten by the T-Rex. I mean, he's a lawyer, right? Nobody cares about them, right? They're not people, right? Yeah, I was one of those kids, too. I'm going to admit it. I was like, yeah, death to the lawyer! Don't quite think in that same direction anymore, but I thought I'd share. So, the no music ends, finally, after, like, God, ten minutes of it, of, of emphasizing this scene. And then we cut to... Hammond. And again, for all his hubris, you can see that this is a man who legitimately cares about people. And the quiet humility and terror with which Richard Attenborough says, Muldoon, whatever Muldoon's first name is, will you please go get a Jeep and go get my grandkids back? And he just says it so quietly, like, please, please. And Muldoon's just like, done. And he goes out with Sattler. Now, what happens next is actually kind of brilliant from a from a story construction perspective. Because what happens next is, first we see, you know, they're talking about, I can't get the Jurassic Park online without Dennis Nedry. Now, that does actually end up be proving true. They never do successfully get the plant, you know, the park fully back into operation. Uh, Nedry, you know, it cuts immediately to Nedry. And... I don't actually have too much to say about his scene. It's a great scene. Wayne Knight does an excellent portrayal of the, of the role. Um, what I like most about it is that he, this whole time, has been in a panic, but mostly in a panic of getting to the docks in time, and, oh, God, I can't quite see, and oh, I've got water all over my glasses. It's terrible. Oh, crap. Oh, crap. Um, then he sees the Dilophosaurus, which, by the way, fun little fact, uh, the spitting and the fans were both effectively invented for this film. Go figure. Uh, so with that presentation, it's like, oh, okay. And I love how he deliberately goes out of his way to mock and taunt the dinosaur. Because you can kind of see his mind start to uh, reassert itself back into his normal situation. I legitimately think that Nedry didn't really think he was in trouble at that point in time. When he flat out says, I thought you were one of the big ones, the dangerous ones. 
You're not an issue. Okay, whatever. I'm just going to go ahead and drove away. And then he dies. Pretty horribly, actually. Uh, and thus Nedri is now the second person to die. So then we have the car scene where they try to get the car out of the, uh, out of the tree, or rather the, the Tim out of the tree and avoiding the car. Lex is completely hysterical at this point. Again, I know this sounds like weird praise, but Ariana Richards does an excellent portrayal of someone who is out of her mind at that point. Great acting. And then Grant's like, it's okay. You can always tell who, who's good with kids by the people who automatically and without meaning to naturally slide into that parental role. And that's exactly what he does with her and with Tim. It's all right. That's not what I'm going to do. You know? And then he goes to get Tim. Tim is in total shock. Tim didn't even respond to him verbally until he saw him. He's just sitting there. I've been like that. I'm sure some of you have been like that too when things have just gone so badly that you just shut down. You don't say anything. You don't move. You should. Logically, you should. Intellectually, you should. But you're just... 404. He goes to get him down. Now, again, I do love the car as the danger. Once again, uh, we see an additional type of threat rather than just the dinosaurs. The car itself... presenting itself as a threat to them. I do wonder why the car went straight down the tree, but whatever. Um, and, well, here we are, back in the car. <laughs> what happens next is a wonderful scene, and with wonderful uh, pacing to it. Because the next thing that happens is all the stuff that we, the audience, already know is very quickly exposition dumped onto Dr. Sattler and uh, Muldoon. They show up, they see the car, you know, they're like, what's going on, Alan? Um, they, uh, they find pieces of Gennaro, they find Malcolm, who is heavily injured, they hear the tremor and the roar of the T-Rex coming, they know that Grant went over the edge, they know that Grant got out, and we get a little of exposition there too, that Grant and Tim did finally get out, and they're off, and they're trying to get out into the wilds. And then we have the, the second of three presentations of the T-Rex, a far more high-paced, high-octane presentation with high music as they're trying to escape this thing. Note, once again, that the primary threat isn't really the... I'm sorry, not saying... I'm sorry, not saying... The primary threat is, of course, the T-Rex, but the thing that prevents them from just getting away from it is simple human fear. Malcolm is so terrified of this thing, he leans back and leans on the gear shift, which sticks the Jeep in a lower gear. Once he pushes him off of it and manages to get the Jeep back into gear, they're fine, and they just get away easily. Also, wonderful visual effects for that. It's a very short scene, but they do a phenomenal job of it. And, of course, objects in mirror closer than they appear, which is both amazing and terrifying at the same time. So, the tempo then plummets significantly. It's like, whoosh. And we have a breather, breather, excuse me, um, the kids have a chance to recover. They, they, this is when we get the recurring gag of the, the plant eater and the metasaurus, right? And the audience gets a chance to finally recover. Uh, I relatively recently went through Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3, and I know that's a weird thing to bring in, in up, but hear me out. One of the biggest problems, my opinion, with Modern Warfare 3's uh, design of its story and its levels was that the pace never let up. It was just like, imagine the T-Rex scene, except that's the whole movie. That's what Modern Warfare 3 was. Um, you need to have, my opinion, you need to have these kind of breather moments to let the audience digest what has just happened, to catch their breath, metaphorically and literally, and to be able to be prepped 
for whatever's coming next. And a, a good breather scene will usually set up further tension down the line. Uh, one of the good examples of this in this film is that we find out about the frog DNA and how they're actually breeding. Now, this is heavily truncated from the book into the movie, how the whole frog DNA, amphibious females turning to males thing. Um, I, I, it works as presented. It, ultimately, it doesn't really even add additional horror. It just reemphasizes the point that, as he put it, life found a way. That despite all of their efforts and all of their systems, they were never in control. And even if, if Nedry hadn't happened, the implication is that this would have gotten bad pretty quickly. Then we shift over... Okay, so we have, we have, we have the breather moment, right? The kids, there's some jokes, right? Kind of lighthearted. Then we cut to Hammond, who's eating some ice cream, along with Dr. Sattler, who comes in. And the tone remains down, but instead of being calm or humorous, it shifts sideways over into melancholy. This is when we really examine John Hammond as a character. We see his motives laid bare, because he just lays it all out there, why he's doing this, what he's doing that. And his greatest flaw, that hubris. Next time it'll be great. Next time it'll be wonderful. And then she rails against him. No, that's the illusion. You never had control. And then she tries the, the, the food and you know, she says, this is delicious. And he says, in almost defeated, quiet grief, spared no expense. Fourth time or fifth, depending on how I miscounted. But I want to talk about that scene one more moment, because it's obvious to me that based on the original design and the book and Crichton's own views, the intent was to show that you can't control nature. But as presented, I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think that's even on the debate table. Instead, what I think we're, what we're seeing is two different characters dealing with trauma, loss, and grief in their own unique ways. Hammond is denial and determination. No, no, next time it'll be better. Next time it'll be amazing. Yes, we've had losses. There's flaws and Nedry and too much automation, but we'll learn from our mistakes and we'll move forward. And her, she is just grief and anger. She rails at him. She yells at him. She, and if you listen to her words, her argument isn't super logical. It's just anger and grief. I don't know what else to call it. People are out there and people are dying. What really matters now is the people who we love. Alan, Tim, and Lex. And then both of them end the scene very quietly. Also, quick aside, all the Jurassic Park merchandise shown in that film was real Jurassic Park merchandise, which is also ruddy brilliant. I'm dead serious. That is actually a brilliant move on behalf of the filmmakers. So... Then they do a complete system shutdown, which has never been done before. Now, I know part of the point is that these people are basically incompetent, but you've never done a controlled shutdown on your, on your systems before? I've done controlled sh shutdowns on my computer that I have in my home for my personal and business use, and I'm not in charge of a multinational, multi-trillion dollar effort that, that is involving dinosaurs. <laughs> Come on, guys. Oh, yeah. They quietly mention without mentioning. They never say it. They never say it. But the implication is wonderful. Because they make a point of calling out, what about the raptor paddocks? This is earlier, when the power was first going out. Like 20 minutes ago. 
It's like, no, the, the raptor paddocks still have power. Why would he shut off the other ones? And then, you know, we cut to him escaping. But they mentioned that this will shut down everything. They never call out the raptors this time. They just leave it in the background for you, the audience, to pick up on the, like, wait, 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 wait. If you shut down everything, then... From that moment on, there is a slow incremental increase in tension and terror. And it shifts uh, angles. Like we get different angles of what is effectively the same terror as we go through the rest of the like last half hour of the film. Because there are, oh my god, the, the construction of these scenes is, is gold. I, I, I really wish I could study and, and teach and learn more about filmmaking and acting and directing and, and composition and, and editing and sound design by just sitting people down and making them watch the last half hour of this film. It is amazing. But I don't like to just say that, so let me try and give you some details. First of all, they have a light little joke. You know, the kids are there. Ha, ha. Um, and then, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and scale up the wall. You know, ha, 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 right, right? And then we cut to... Uh, we cut to Dr. Sattler. Now, notice the music here, because it's very tense. Think about this for a moment. Dr. Sattler is turning the power back on to get the park working in. This should be uplifting, triumphant music, but instead it's very tense and very dreadful. Because John Williams is amazing, but also because of a concept. And I, I tried to look this up. I actually spent several minutes trying to look this up, and I didn't find the exact phrasing, so forgive me. Um, there's a concept between audience unknown suspense and audience known suspense now alfred hitchcock actually uh, term coined a phrase for that and i don't i couldn't find the phrase forgive me i'll use his example really quick um if you have a a, a film you know a, a flick where people sit down and they start chatting at a, at a thing and then the clock ticks and then they explode the audience is gonna be like oh my god what happened but if before that you show a, a, a dangerous person coming in and putting a bomb under that table and setting it for one o'clock, and then you cut to them sitting down and you see over there that the, the clock's about to tick to one o'clock, the audience now knows what the characters do not. That's a particular, I've talked about this before many times, especially over in my television stuff. That's a particular form of suspense building because now we are in suspense when the characters aren't. And that's what the music and the pace of the scene help to emphasize. And it notice the edits start to get a little bit quicker in 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 uh, sequence to each other, as we we kind of increase the pace of this scene as she's turning on the power and turning on the power. And it's like, oh my God, we need to get we need to get him off this this fence and blah blah blah. And yes, I know people have actually done uh, legitimate essays on whether or not the fence would have actually electrified him like that. No, let's just move on from that. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have. Let's just go ahead and say that, unless it was a specific type of fence. Again, let's not get into it. It's like, oh my god, oh god, what are we doing? Um, and uh, and once again, by the way, notice that the threat here is not of dinosaurs. It's actually an entirely man-made threat. Again. Um, and there's also this wonderful little bit where the guy's like, okay, one. Okay, you're going to jump down on three. One. I actually didn't notice it before. One, two, three. And then it cuts to Dr. Sally who says, four, five. Wonderful transitions in this scene. Like I said, beautifully constructed scene and then the power turns on and then tim is electrified and she's saying in almost grief at how relieved she is i think we're finally back in business and at one hour 
44 minutes and 33 seconds, the first Velociraptor finally shows itself. Despite being one of the most well-known dinosaurs of this, of this franchise, we don't see one for an hour and, a, and three quarters through the course of this film. Like in the last 15 minutes of this film, do we finally see a raptor? And the raptor just... And it's wonderful because this whole thing has been this incredibly tense thing. And this is probably one of the few times I've ever seen a jump scare done properly because we're already on edge. This isn't a jump scare out of nowhere. I don't like that. This is a jump scare of, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, ah, like that, right? Um, and then, oh, God, what do we do, what do we do? And then the hand falls on her shoulder and Samuel L. Jackson is dead, off camera, unfortunately. There was actually scenes about that, but we don't get to see those. And then Muldoon dies, clever girl. And those two scenes in conjunction showcase the kind of threat the raptors are going to present. We've already had implications, but now we're seeing them in action, and they are just as deadly as we've been led to believe. Then, <laughs> so then, again, another wonderful presentation. A whole new type of terror, still using the velociraptors. They have the food the jello, the shaking of the eyes. And of course, Tim's not stupid, so he... Okay, the raptors are inside, and oh God, and they finally reunite. There's a brief moment of music absence, the quiet, infiltrative, like everything just goes quiet, the music goes dead, and everyone's trying to hide from these velociraptors, and now we get a completely new kind of horror. Rather than the massive, terrifying, death-doom Godzilla that is the Tyrannosaurus Rex, we have the quiet serial killer that is the velociraptor slowly slipping through the familiar. And notice the visual design of each of these sets. It's bright, it's sunny, it's clean. It is designed to look as normal and everyday as possible so that the terror that you're facing in it, it has that wonderful uh, juxtaposition which makes it even more horrifying than it otherwise would be. And then they, you know, they go through the kitchen and there's just all this wonderful stuff and there's this excellent bit where you know, uh, Dr. Sattler says, yeah, no, we'll be fine as long as they don't figure out how to open doors. Immediately cut to him opening the door. Um, I also love how Lex and Tim manage to outwit the raptors. Because, in my opinion, it reaches the line of improbability, but doesn't burst my particular suspension of disbelief, which I've talked about so many times in my show. Because, if you pay attention, what they're doing is they're adrenaline pumping like crazy. They're mainlining adrenaline, and they're using their brains because now they've gotten a little bit past that initial shock of the threat and the danger. So there, there's a wonderful bit where um, Lex uses her very legitimate and real terror to present herself as a helpless creature in the mirror for the raptor to run into. That's brilliant. So it, it rather than coming off as like a Mary Sue or, ha-ha, I'm invincible because I'm a kid, it's these kids just barely struggling to survive, which I love. You know what I mean. Um, and then, well, and then it's a Unix system. <laughs> I... I have to make fun of this scene. It's probably the only scene in this whole constructor that pulls me out of the moment because it's a Unix system. By the way, that's actually a real uh, Unix-based system that she's working on. Go figure. Um, but then it cuts to Dr. Sattler. like, I, ca I can't help you get the gun. I have to hold the door. Um, have you ever tried to hold a door shut from like the part right on the hinges like she is? Uh, it doesn't really work out that way. Physics don't work out that way. So she's she's not doing anything. She, she can just walk over, grab the gun. Um... <clears throat> Anyways, I do want to mention, though, again, the construction of this is wonderful because they want to get across a few last moments to set up the finale here. 
But rather than any kind of presentation or standard exposition, even visual exposition, they do a kind of absence exposition. The phone ringing. So the mere fact that the phone is ringing is a huge deal because it means the phone lines are back up. Yes, oh my God, the phone lines are back up. We need to get the helicopter. We need to get the hell out of here. And then we hear, they're coming through the windows. You know, they're, oh my God. We hear something. We hear the gunshots and Hammond is just freaking out because his kids are there. And then we cut to them running away and a quick shot of the gun on the ground jammed. With those two things, that audio... And that quick visual shot, we know everything that happened in that brief raptor battle, and we don't have to showcase any of it. And it keeps the pace going so that the scene can quickly and immediately get all that information dumping, that exposition to the audience, and we can immediately lead to the next part where they're climbing through the ducks, trying to desperately get out, get out into the thing. And now is when I have to talk about the original ending. Because originally, obviously, the number of people who are supposed to survive changed so many times in this film. Like I said, a lot of rewrites. But originally, the T-Rex bones were, like, controlled like a puppet, and Grant was going to go control them and deal with that. And basically, everyone looked at that and said, yeah, no, that's dumb. But Spielberg says, you know what, there's something I want to happen, because I'm Steven Spielberg, and I know what the audience wants. I know that sounds like a weird statement, but again, this was back when he was still had the platinum touch. So he instead has something that is actually illogical and is literally cheating from a cinematographer, cinematographic perspective happen, but we're all okay with it because it's awesome. See, one of the things they establish very heavily about the T-Rex is that it's loud and that it makes a ton of noise and that you can feel it and hear it coming, and yet the T-Rex comes in out of nowhere and nobody notices it coming. That is literally cinematic cheating. But we're okay with it in this case because it just comes in and is awesome. And it basically ends the film with its roar. And then the ending itself is very quiet. I like that for some reason. I've been trying to figure out why throughout the course of, of analyzing this and jotting down my notes and recombining my notes. And I think the reason I finally came to is because it leaves the ending up to us. It's still good. We know they got out, we know they survived, and we can infer whatever we want from that point onwards. It also kind of serves as a, as a continuation of one of the predominant themes of Jurassic Park, the film, the character focus. Um, it, it ends on a character-defining moment for Grant and his shared looks with Dr. Sattler and the implications of what that will lead to. Remember, one of their first scenes together was them talking about having children. So... Very, very wonderful stuff, and no dialogue, just the quiet music. Starts off sad, slowly builds, and then ends on triumphant when the credits roll, because John Williams is amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a wonderful film to discuss. I really hope you guys have enjoyed my rumination analysis on this, and I will be seeing you guys next week for a video I've already recorded for Blade Runner 2049. See you around, guys.